Hello. Boy, it is an honor to be here with all of you. Welcome to all the campuses. As it was mentioned, my name is Pat Murata. For those of you that do not know me, I'm part of the elder board, which simply means I'm getting old. I'm getting old. So it's an honor to be here with you today. I'm going to hold something up here. I'm going to ask you a question. How many people know what this is? Yes, okay. A lot of people raising their hands. Now, if you're familiar with the Boy Scouts or the Girl Scouts, you're going to know what I'm holding up. What this is here is a sash of merit badges. In fact, the one I'm holding up in my hand right now, believe it or not, is my wife's when she was a young Girl Scout. Many, many, I better watch out how many, many years ago I said. I'm always admired by my mother-in-law and how she keeps such care of memorabilia of when her children were young. And so this is just one sash of my, my wife's merit badges when she was a Girl Scout. Now, you know what I like about merit badges? They bring about clarity. You know what I mean? You do something good and you get rewarded. You learn how to camp and, and you get a merit badge. You learn how to swim and you get recognized, you get a merit badge, you sell the most Girl Scout cookies and raise the most money, whoo, you get a big old merit badge if you do that. And she did that two years in a row. She was so good. She was so good. Clarity. You do good, you get recognized, you get rewarded. In fact, most of life generally operates from a merit system. You do good in school, you get into the college of your choice. You do good at work, you get promoted, you save when you're young, you reap rewards later in life when you retire. See, we generally understand the merit system because life generally operates from it. And so when I was young, it was just natural for me to think that God must grade from the merit system. And I thought, good people go to heaven, and what do good people do? Good people go to church, good people read their Bibles, Good people pray, good people help other people, and they don't do bad things. So when I was young, I said, I'm going to do good. I want to impress God by all the good that I did. And so literally as a kid, when I would go to church, I would envision the angels in heaven making me a merit badge with a little steeple on it. And when I would read the Bible, I would envision them making me a merit badge with a little Bible on it. And when I would pray, you get the point, I would envision them making me a merit badge with hands folded like this. So that when I died, God would be so impressed by all the good that I did as he presented me with a grand assortment of merit badges. But when I got older, I began to think, well, how many merit badges does God require? At what point does a person become good? Now, that's a question that will present a bit of a dilemma because you will never find the answer anywhere in the Bible. Take, for example, honesty. Now, we know God wants us to be honest, to shoot straight with one another. And if honesty is required to enter into heaven, well, how much honesty? Does exaggeration count as lying? Is 80% enough? What are the rules? How do you know? Where do they post the grades as to how we're doing today? You see, it's a bit of a dilemma. And then I began to think, well, how much good do I have to do to offset the bad? Because I'm not perfect, no one is. And so when the Bible says, 
For example, do not covet. What happens if I do? Do I wash the car that I just coveted? Or take something serious, even more serious, like adultery? What happens if somebody does that? What do they do with that? Five root canals with no anesthesia? How do you offset the bad with the good? How do you settle the score? You see, there is an inherent tension with merit system when it's applied to faith and to God, and it's all wrapped up in this question. When is good good enough for God? Have you ever thought of that question? When is good good enough for God? Popular author and pastor Max Lucado early in his ministry, shares a story of when he posed this exact question to a number of religious leaders across all faith groups. He met with them one-on-one. -on -one. And he concluded that research that he did by saying the vast majority of them referenced the merit system. Just do good and you'll be okay with God. Just do good and you will be saved. Just do and be and do and be and do, be, do, be, do, be, do, be, do. Maybe you've heard the verse. It's from the most common song sung in the world. Every world religion except for one sings from that songbook. Just do good and you will be saved. Because every religion in the world except for one says that only good people go to heaven. But if that was the case, shouldn't we have some clarity around the question, when is good good enough? Because without clarity, you're left thinking, am I good enough? Did I pray enough? Did I go to church enough? Did I give enough? Did I read the Bible enough? Did I go to enough PTA meetings? Did I forgive enough. You know, the Apostle Peter rubbed up against this tension in Matthew chapter 18. And he posed this exact question to Jesus, when is good good enough when it comes to forgiveness? And this is what he asks in verse 21, Matthew 18, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Seven times, up to seven times? In other words, am I good if I forgive seven times? Now some would say, because seven is the number of completion, what Peter was really asking here is, am I to forgive always? Still ends with a question mark. But a number of commentators would say, oh no, no, he literally means seven. Because the Jewish law commanded that you were, were to forgive three times. And so what Peter is doing here is he's doubling it and adding one for good measure. He is trying to impress Jesus. But look at how Jesus responds. Verse 22. I tell you not seven times, but seventy, seven times. Your translation may have it 70 times, seven, 490 times. And I believe Peter was a bit frustrated by that response. Not only because he thought he was being real good, and Jesus is like, not good enough, but also because he wanted clarity. 
And Jesus certainly did not give him clarity with 490 times. What Jesus was telling him is this. Don't keep track of the amount of times you're being good. Don't keep track of the amount of times you're forgiving. Just forgive. Just be gracious. Just be kind. And then Jesus goes into this parable. As he continues to respond to the question that Peter lays out there. And so for the balance of our time, I want to walk through this awesome parable, starting in verse 23. Again, Jesus speaking to Peter in response to the question he lays out. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Now, that's a lot of money. Commentators would tell you the average wage earner would have to live multiple lives in order to even start thinking about paying this back. Millions upon millions of dollars is owed. He brings the man in. Verse 25, since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. In other words, the servants got a problem. I mean, his whole life is being shaken to the core. And his poor decisions have brought him to the brink of disaster. But not only him, his entire family. They're all going to be sold into slavery. They're facing a life of bondage. And I can only imagine the regret and the pain and the fear and the hopelessness that this servant must have been facing and feeling. Verse 26, at this the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The king must have been thinking, there's no way you're going to pay me back. Given the enormity of what you owe me, it's impossible. That's silly. And yet you will notice that the servant doesn't make any excuses here. I mean, he doesn't blame the king. You were dumb enough to give me the money and give me freedom over. He doesn't do that. He just falls to his knees, admits guilt, pleads for mercy. Everything is riding on the king's response. Verse 27, the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. That makes no sense at all. I mean, if I were the king, I don't know if I'd forgive that easily. I really don't. I mean, at the very least, I would have made him squirm. I would have given him a dissertation on how irresponsible he was with my money. I mean, he rightly owed the king the money, and yet the king doesn't do that at all. In fact, you will notice he goes above and beyond what the king or what the servant requested. Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. He says, no. That's canceled. Paid in full. And what the king does for the servant on that day, the servant could never have done for himself. And the king, out of a heart of compassion, gives the servant a brand new beginning. Brand new. The servant didn't deserve it. The servant didn't earn it. Hear me. The servant 
did not merit it. In one word, the king gave him grace. I imagine Jesus pulling out of the parable, looking at Peter and saying, Peter, the question you ask, when is good, good enough? It's really not the question you ought to be asking because you will never be good enough. See, in this parable, God is the king and we are the servant. And like the servant, we too have incurred a debt we can't make good on. It's not a financial debt. It's a spiritual debt. In one word, it's sin. None of us are perfect. In John chapter 8, we read a story, many of you are probably familiar with this story, of the woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. And the religious leaders, the Pharisees, catch her in the act. They drag her into the temple courts. They bring her to Jesus. And they're about to stone her to death. And they ask Jesus, they're testing him, what do you say we ought to do with this adulterous woman? You see, the law allowed them to stone her, stone her to death. And they were asking Jesus, what do you say we ought to do? And Jesus bends down. He begins to write in the sin. Now, we do not know what he is writing. I wonder, though, if he was writing the sins of the Pharisees. Arrogant, proud, lovers of self. He then stands up and he says those famous words. He who is without sin cast the first stone. The woman must have been scared to death, covering her eyes, thinking she's about to die. But all she heard were the thump, 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 the rocks just falling out of the Pharisees' hands as they walk out the temple courts. Jesus protected her. Philip Yancey, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, references that story in John chapter 8. And he says there's only two types of people in this world. Not the guilty and the righteous, which many people think, but the guilty who know they've done wrong, the adulterous woman, and the guilty who never think they do, the Pharisees and the religious elite. And what Jesus did in that story as he took the two extremes in society and he said, you're all sinners. We all fall short. We're not perfect. But hear me, God is. His standard is perfection. James says, you just break one of his standards, you break them all. The apostle Paul says, we all fall short of the glory of God. And if we ever get tempted to think, you know, but I'm pretty good, I'm pretty good. I think God's going to be somewhat impressed by me. Remember what the prophet Isaiah said. He said, all our good deeds are like filthy rags when compared to God's goodness. The apostle Paul in Ephesians 3, he lists out a bunch of good accomplishments that he did, and then he concludes the litany of accomplishments by comparing them to poop. Garbage. In light of God's goodness. Now the point is not that God doesn't want us doing good. Of course he does. The point though 
is that all the good, 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 good works that we do in our own effort will never make us good enough. You know why? Because our goodness, when compared to God's goodness, is a joke. It's laughable. And Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, don't worry about the number of times you ought to forgive. Just forgive. Be gracious. Be kind. Be compassionate. Because that's how I am to you. See, our God doesn't operate out of a merit system. He operates out of a grace system. And he wants us operating out of the same system. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 Oh, these are, these are the grace verses in the Bible. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's a gift. Not by works. So that no one can boast. And like the servant, when we look up to the king and humbly admit our sin debt and plead for mercies in and through Christ. Hear me. The king, our heavenly father, will look down and say, forgiven. It's at that time and only then when we become good enough. Not because of anything we did, but because of who we are in Christ. It's his goodness and his righteousness that makes us not only good enough, hear me, it makes us perfect in the eyes of our Heavenly Father. Brand new beginning. Clean slate. Don't matter how many sins, how many regrets, how many poor choices, how much guilt you have in your past, you can take the 10,000 bags of sin, place them on the altar of grace, and we've got a brand new beginning. Brand new. He does for us what we could not do for ourselves. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. Hear me. We do not merit it. In one word, it is Incredible, amazing, incomprehensible grace. C.S. Lewis said, the one thing that differentiates Christianity from anything on the face of this planet, any other world religion, any other worldview, the one thing that differentiates Christianity from it all, it's grace. But you know what? You know what I find somewhat interesting is that when Peter asks Jesus this question is seven times enough? I find it interesting that Jesus, in light of our sin nature, doesn't say, yeah, seven times? That's incredible. I mean, we are sinners, right? Or 
Or maybe even, I find it interesting that he doesn't maybe even say this. Seven times, Peter, ooh, that's a bit high. You ought to aim a little lower. Do five. Five times. I mean, if you can forgive five times, I'd be pretty blown away by that. But can I be honest with you, Peter? You got some rough edges. You know, you got a bit of a temper if you hit two times. I mean, if you forgive twice, I'll be impressed. I'll be impressed. He don't do that. Peter says seven times. Jesus said that's laughable. Seventy times seven. Why does he elevate it? He elevates it. You know why? Because in light of his grace, when we receive his grace, he expects so much more from us. And in light of his grace, he expects grace to flow out of our lives and into the lives of those around us. You see, the parable is not over. And as that servant who was just forgiven big time is leaving the palace of the king, he does something pretty troubling. Pick up the passage with me, verse 28. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. Now notice it says he found. He didn't bump into him. He sought him out. And this, this man now owed him a hundred silver coins. Now that, that's not insignificant, but it's mere pennies in comparison to what he owed the king. He goes on, he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. Verse 29, his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me. Notice, it's essentially the same as what he said to the king. Be patient with me and I will pay it back. Now, what do we expect the response to the plea to be? Not what do you know it to be. I know some of you know the parable, but what do we expect it to be? To forgive. That's what we expect. I mean, he was just forgiven big time. Debt was removed. But look at how he responds, verse 30. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. And you have to ask yourself, why does he do that? How could the just forgiven man not forgive another? I mean, he was just shown incredible mercy, incredible grace by the king. And yet he refuses to do it, and it bothers us to the core. And you've got to ask yourself, why? Now, what's curious is that Jesus doesn't give us an explanation as to why he does what he does. So it leaves us to draw our own conclusions. You know what I think? I think when that man left the palace of the king, he wasn't saying, what an awesome king I serve. He wasn't saying, what a merciful, compassionate, grace-giving king I serve. Instead, he was saying, whoo, I'm a shrewd businessman. Whoo, that was close. I just pulled a quick one on the king. I skirted the system I escaped murder. I found a loophole. And instead of having a grateful heart, instead of being changed 
by the grace the king showed him, he had a puffed out chest. He was arrogant. And he was completely self-absorbed. And when word got back to the king, he was not too pleased. Verse 31. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged. We can understand that. They were outraged and they went and told the master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Then he asks this rhetorical question. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? Shouldn't you have been changed by the grace I've shown you? To which we all would say, yes. Yeah, should have. Because he wasn't changed. The king was pretty angry. Verse 34. In his anger, master handed him over to the jailer until he should pay back all he owed. He was in jail for life. Parable is done. And some of us are like, yes, right? Justice was rendered. That ungrateful servant got what he deserved. That's an awesome parable. Wait a minute, though. Just wait, 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 wait. God's, wait a minute, no. God's the king, and we're the servant. Now, now I'm getting a bit uncomfortable. That's making me a bit uncomfortable. Because you see, this is a parable, yes, of hope. It's also a parable of warning. Yeah, it's a parable of hope because we too, like the servant in the first half of the parable, we too have incurred a debt that we just can't make good on. And when we humbly admit our sin debt and plead for mercy in Christ, our King, our Heavenly Father, looks down and says, paid in full, we're perfect in His eyes. He gives us a brand new beginning. We don't earn it. We do not deserve it. We certainly didn't merit it. In one word, it's incredible grace. That is a parable of hope without question. But it's also a parable of warning. You know what Jesus is saying? Now remember, Jesus is speaking to Peter, to the disciples, to you and I, accepted him as our savior he's speaking to those of us that accepted his grace and he's saying don't be you don't want to be I'm warning you against being the ungrateful servant as I was preparing the sermon as I was Studying this passage of Scripture, I couldn't help but ask myself, am I anything like this ungrateful servant? Am I even remotely like him? Am I completely blown away by the grace that God shows me every single day in Christ? Am I as compassionate 
and kind and forgiving and loving as I ought to be in light of the grace he showers on me every single day. Because if we're not, if we're even remotely like the ungrateful servant, it ought to bother us. Because it makes absolutely no sense if we are. In light of his grace, in light of his love, it makes no sense. And Jesus in this parable is saying, don't be like that guy. I'm warning you. God expects those of us who have accepted his grace to be changed, to be more and more like him, right? And no reasonable person would say, how dare you, God, expect me to be moved, to be changed, to be impacted by your goodness, your love, your grace, your kindness. Romans 2 4 tells us it's his kindness it's his grace it's his compassion it's his love that leads to catch the word repentance change that is not by the way a call to perfection we'll never be perfect but we ought to be more and more and more like him as time passes Jesus is done with the parable he ends the teaching with this last sobering statement. He says this, verse 35. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless, hope, unless, there's always hope in the words of Jesus, unless, you forgive your brothers or sisters. Now catch this phrase, from your heart. From your heart. Notice he doesn't say unless you forgive and are gracious and kind to your brothers and sisters and the way you behave. No, he's saying from your heart. You know why? Because the heart is who we really are at the core. And God is after our hearts. He's after our hearts. He's after our complete dedication and trust in him. And hear me, listen, listen, listen. That's why our God operates out of a grace system and not a merit system. Because merit never captures the heart. I'm being good because I have to be. I'm being good because I'm going to get something good in return. I'm trying my hardest to be good because it's required. There's no heart in that. That's just work. That's just effort. That's just grit. And it just leaves you tired. It leaves you doubting, am I good enough? It can even leave you a bit arrogant and deceived, thinking you're all good. Because you can do all sorts of outward good and not be anywhere near God. Think of the Pharisees. The religious leaders that Jesus was always confronting in the Gospels, they mastered the merit system. 
Man, they did all the do's and don'ts perfectly, all the rules and regulations without exception. And all it did was leave them with a puffed up, arrogant heart that never gave grace. The only thing, the only thing that captures the human heart when it is received is the grace of God in and through our Lord Jesus. Professor and author Clifford Williams said, and I quote, what God wants is not a good performance, but my heart. He wants me to serve in the way of the Spirit, not out of compulsion, but out of desire. Now listen to this. And that desire springs from grace. I've had the privilege of getting to know over the last year, a little over a year, a man by the name of Greg. He goes to our Greenbush campus and he's been going there, I want to say, a little over two years. And let me tell you a little bit about Greg. Greg has an incredible servant's heart. I mean, he is serving at the 9 o'clock. He is serving at the 11 o'clock. Sometimes I wonder if Greg ever leaves the campus. I mean, he's always there serving. And one of the things you'll always see him do is he'll be right up there in the front greeting people as they come in the door. He has a big old smile, a firm handshake, a big old bear hug. And he always says, has anybody told you they love you today? As he points people to the love of God. And he knows everybody's name. And if he doesn't know your name, he's going to know your name. And he just wants to pray. And he just wants to encourage you. I come in the door one, one morning. And I see Greg there. Hey, what's going on? And we're talking. And he pulls out this little, little white pad. And there's all these names on, them, on there. And I said, well, what's that all about? Oh, he goes, hey, these are all the new, newcomers. They're coming through the door. I write their names down. I go, really? What do you do with that? He goes, I pray over them throughout the whole week. I just pray for them. I said, that's good. Oh, I like that. That is so good. And he just has this genuine approachability that when he asks, can I pray for you? Can I encourage you? You just want to open up and talk to him. I'll tell you this. Anytime I leave Greg's presence, I feel better after than before. He's one of those incredible, encouraging guys, and I'm so happy that I've gotten to know him over the last year. But before coming to grace, Greg was real far from God. And to say that he lived a difficult life is an understatement. He has had to endure challenges and struggles and anxiety in his life. Real difficult situations. And one of those situations was a tragic car accident that he was in that caused the death of, a, of the woman in the other car. Now, as you could imagine, when Greg heard what had happened to the woman, he was devastated. And he felt this incredible burden. Guilt, regret, fear gripped his heart. Anxiety, and it was real low, as you could imagine. And he began to think, what good will ever come from 
my life. He wasn't wrestling with the theoretical question, when is good good enough for God? He knew he wasn't good, and he didn't think God wanted anything to do with him. But a ray of hope came, and a handwritten note from the woman that was very, very good friends of the woman that was killed in the car accident. He received this handwritten note 10 days after the accident. And he showed it to me. And let me tell you, Greg cherishes this note. It was pristine. You would have thought he received it yesterday, even though it's been several years. And he gave me permission to share with you what this woman wrote to him in this note. And I quote, I cannot begin to express my deep sadness for you and your family in this tragic accident. I am a Christian woman and I just spent time praying with my friend the morning of the accident. The woman that was killed was her friend she's referring to here. She goes on, I knew her well. And I know her her heart of forgiveness. And I want you to know that I'm sure if you could hear her now, you would hear the voice of forgiveness. I want you to know I'm holding you and your family in my prayer. That note, that encouragement, that grace that that woman showed him in that letter began to capture his heart. And eventually Greg came to Grace Fellowship and eventually to a saving relationship with his heavenly father through Christ. Here he was, down and out in the gutter, and the only thing that began to lift him up was the grace of God, hear me, flowing out of the lives of God's people and impacting those around them. That is exactly the lesson that Jesus is trying to teach us even today. You see, what would a merit system do for somebody who's down and out? For somebody who's struggling, filled with anxiety, filled with fear, regret, guilt, hopelessness. It does nothing for us. What's it say? Get up and start doing good. No, that doesn't work. The only thing that captures the heart it's the grace of God. A few weeks back, I was talking to Greg. I said, hey, Greg, Greg, you're always serving. You're always giving. You're always helping. Why do you do it? And he said this, and I quote, it's what I like to do. It's who God is making me. He is making me a new person. I would have never fathomed the things I'm doing today just five years ago. And then he said, if it wasn't for the note of encouragement and the grace that that woman showed, and if it wasn't for the 
Christians at Grace Fellowship who encourage me and love me and show me the grace and love of Christ, hear me, he says, I would not be here today. And then he said, I don't even know where I'd be. And then he goes, Pat, he's full of energy, Greg. He says, can I tell you what my life song is? I want to finish well. Can I tell you what it is? I said, absolutely. And then he recites these lyrics from the song, I want to live like that from the sidewalk prophets. And I end with this quote. Am I proof that you are who you say you are? That grace can really change our heart? Do I live like your love is true? People pass and even if they don't know my name, is there evidence that I have been changed when they see me, do they see you? I want to live like that and give it all I have so that everything I say and do points to you. The grace of God, my friends, truly, truly captures the heart when it's received. And it changes everything. Let's pray. Father God, while your word is so incredibly powerful, and Father, we just thank you for the truth that you give us. We thank you, Father God, for the hope you give us in and through the cross of your son, Jesus, that can take lowly sinners where all that and make us pure and give us a brand new beginning. It's incomprehensible the amount of love and grace you shower to those of us who just admit our sin debt and accept the free gift of life that comes through your son, Jesus. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the grace that you give us. And Father, I just pray that we would never forget the depths of your love, the depths of your grace, the depths of your kindness, and my prayer, wherever we are on our, on our journey towards you, Father, my prayer is that regardless of where we are, that that love would draw us closer to you and that we become more like you so that we impact a world that is in need of your grace. We pray everything in your matchless name, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Pat. I would like to invite the ushers.